Welcome to Kanenbaum Podcast, episode number 24. I'm Tom Barthel, serving as your host for this episode. Also serving as pastor at Christ Lutheran Church, a Wells congregation in Baxter, Minnesota. For this episode, we'll begin with Freedom in Christ, shared by Pastor Mark Falk. Galatians 1, 11-12, straight from Christ. I want you to know, my bro- brothers, that the gospel I preached to you is not something that man made up. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ, NIV, 1984. At some point early in reading Galatians, we may ask, what does it matter? Why all this personal history? Paul, just cut to the chase. But in fact, the Holy Spirit clearly thinks that this history is important. It is apparent that the false teachers, Satan's unwitting tools, in trying to steal the gospel truth of grace alone, through Christ alone, by faith alone, thought they had hit upon a weak spot. The other apostles had been with Jesus from the beginning of his ministry. Even the apostle chosen to replace Judas after his suicide was chosen from a list of candidates who had been with Jesus for those crucial three years. The New Testament is the witness of eyewitnesses, or at least of those who knew the eyewitnesses very well. The Apostle John makes much of this in his Gospel. Paul was not among these. It is reasonable to assume that he knew a great deal about this Jesus whose name he had tried to wipe from the memory of the Jewish nation. But he had not been there with Matthew and Peter and James and John. The accusation is clear. You got your gospel from men, not from the man. You are not a reliable witness. But is not. But that is not the report that Luke gives us in Acts 9. Jesus himself came to Paul on the road to Damascus. Jesus himself was the witness of his own gospel. We will say more of Paul's education and training in the gospel. For today this fact stands out. Paul was no second-hand apostle. He got the truth straight from the horse's mouth. This was a vital rebuttal of the lies circulating in Galatia. But what does it mean to us? Too often today, 2,000 years removed from the day of Jesus, PBS specials and false prophets with big names at even bigger universities speak of the gospel of Jesus as a tradition handed down rather than a truth revealed. They challenge the early witnesses. The scriptures, quote-unquote, only reflect the faith of their day. They were compiled decades or even centuries after the fact, etc., etc., God, the Holy Spirit, wants us to trust the words of comfort he gives us through Paul. After all, no New Testament writer so clearly lays out justification by faith as Paul, the man who tried so hard to uphold justification by obedience to the law in his former life. For this reason, God himself directs Paul to defend his apostleship. By defending the source of his truth, Jesus, he defends the truth of redemption, atonement, and salvation that opens the door to heaven. And speak about salvation by grace alone. If anyone should be denied entrance to heaven, Paul the persecutor should top God's no-fly list. But Paul is saved by grace. Paul preaches grace. Grace, God's undeserved love and favor, is sure. Jesus himself instructed Paul. Help me with my unbelief. We read Genesis 15, 7 and 8. He also said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to take possession of it. 
But Abram said, O Sovereign Lord, how can I know I will gain possession of it? God has, in effect, told Abram, I am the Lord who put you in the position you now have. He was reminding Abram that he was called by God to leave his homeland, a land where we are told Abram's father worshipped false gods. And in this new land, he receives great blessing from the Lord. Occasionally, we need such a reminder, don't we? We need to be reminded of what God has done for us to put us in the position we now have in life. He called us to worship Him alone. He showered us with the promise of great inheritance through faith. The Apostle Paul wrote reminders in his letters to the churches. Don't you know? The wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanders, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Notice there is no inheritance, no blessing, until one is washed, justified by God and in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Abram now had an inheritance because God made him his own. You now have an inheritance because God has made you his own. It is like what we read in Ephesians 2. We were by nature objects of wrath, but God made us alive with Christ. Abram, having received extra promises and assurance from the word of the Lord in the past, now hungers for more information and assurance once again. We'll look at that in the next section. As you reflect on your standing in life, remember to reflect on how the grace of God has brought you to where you now stand, an heir of heaven. And hunger like Abram for more of the word of the Lord. Ask those questions. How can I be sure I am an heir of the Lord and his promised blessings? Find the assurance in the word. He has made his promise to you. And he is the one. He brought you to where you are today. He will carry out his good plan for you to completion. Remember the promised rest. A rest which God has placed you by grace to now inherit. This is Nothing But the Blood. Performed by Branches Band. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus.
but the blood of Jesus. Next is God's Word for You, shared by Pastor Timothy Smith. Job 7, uh, verses 1 to 10. It's, it's a short chapter, just 21 verses. And here, for one, one more uh, little burst, Job is answering his friend Eliphaz. Now, since chapter 6 seemed to contain two complete discourses from Job, we talked about that at the end of the last uh, lesson, this is the, the third stage, really, of Job's reply. Verse 1, Does not man have hard service on the earth? Are not his days like those of a hired man? Now, the term hard service in Hebrew, zabah, is a reference to the hard life of a conscripted soldier or sailor. Older readers might recall a related Hebrew word for armies in the liturgical phrase, the Lord God of Sabaoth, or armies. Now, the Greek translation here is very colorful, using the word um, piraterian, slavery to a gang of pirates. Soldiers and sailors who were forced into service were slaves. Um, uh, we see that in 1 Samuel 14.52. That also might be the picture of the hard service in Isaiah 40, verse 2. A sailor who disobeyed an order in a time of war was subject to the most brutal punishment, even death. In the New Testament, Paul compares the slavish life of a soldier to the life of service we have to God. It can be a brutally hard life, but we want to please God, not because we're terrified of him, but because he's God and we want to serve him. Paul likes to call his fellow workers, fellow soldiers, sistratioten, sistratioten, I should say, in Philippians 2.25 and Philemon 2. And he encourages Timothy to bear hardship as a pastor like a good soldier, he says, 2 Timothy 2.3. This is the Christian's life of sanctification. We serve because we desire to be good soldiers, not just obedient ones. And like a good soldier, we want to please our commanding officer, who is God in heaven, in 2 Timothy 2.4. So we endure hardships and even rejoice if we suffer for the sake of the gospel of Jesus' forgiveness. That's what Peter is saying in 1 Peter 1.6. Job's assessment of life here is identical to that of the heathen. Anyone who doesn't truly know what life is all about thinks that either what man is created to serve the gods or that life is a mistake, so enjoy it while you while you can. God, however, tells us the unexpected truth. Man is the crown of God's creation, made in the image, excuse me, the image of God. But we lost the image in sin. Verses 2 to 5. Like a slave longing for the evening shadows, or a hired man waiting eagerly for his wages, so I have been allotted months of futility. And nights of misery have been assigned to me. When I lie down, I think, how long before I get up? The night drags on, I toss till dawn. My body is clothed with worms and scabs. My skin is broken and festering. Perhaps many of us have experienced one or two of Job's troubles or symptoms, but verse 5 takes us into just a new world of agony. His sores have become so bad that they are infected with worms. They scab over, then they open and become running sores again. The pattern of scab, running sore, scab, running sore, gave him no peace, no rest. His pain never even stayed the same. It was always changing. Although the Bible does not give us an itinerary of hell's tortures, this kind of changing agony, whether changing stores or 
intense heat followed by intense cold or extreme thirst followed by drowning or, or something else. It's often thought to be something that at least some will experience in hell. The Bible hints about different degrees of suffering in hell for different kinds of sinners. Uh, Jesus says that the heathen of Tyre and Sidon will have a punishment, quote, more bearable than the people of Chorazin and Bethsaida who rejected him. That's in Luke 10. And that even the people of Sodom, condemned for their homosexuality and other perversions, uh, which uh, in Jude calls a punishment of eternal fire, would have a more bearable punishment than the people of Capernaum, who rejected the gospel of Jesus Christ in Matthew 11:23. Let's look at verse 6. My days are swifter than a weaver's shuttle, so they come to an end without hope. One moment Job cries about his long nights in verse 4, and the next he talks about the swiftness of his days in verse 6, but they sit in the poem parallel with their end in verse 7 and Job's entire life in verse 7. His days are his whole life, which he believes is running as fast as the last grains of sand in an hourglass or the last sip of wine from a glass, as, as Paul in 2 Timothy 4 talks about a, a, a drink being poured out, or as fast, he says, as a weaver's shuttle. A weaver's shuttle is that little piece of wood that carries the thread from one side of a loom to the other while the weaver quickly makes his cloth. Job uses the word for swift, which can describe a fast runner in Job 9 or an eagle in 2 Samuel 1 or a leopard in Habakkuk 1. The, the weaver's tool, the Hebrew is ereg, is an object that runs through the meshes of the loom. The word for loom or the weaver's shuttle also occurs in the Samson story in, Job, in Judges 16. The final word of the verse, uh, of verse 6, is, is hope. That's the term tikvah, which often means hope as in Ruth 1, but it's also the old term for thread or cord, as in the story of Rahab and the spies in Joshua 2. If we apply that meaning to this verse, Job might be saying that my days are swifter than a weaver's shuttle, but they come to an end for lack of thread. That is to say, Job's life is drained or unraveled. This view of the verse should be supported by what follows. Job's expiring breath in verse 7, closing the eyes in verse 8, and the vanishing cloud in verse 9. Let's read those verses down to verse 10. Remember, O God, that my life is but a breath. My eyes will never see happiness again. The eye that now sees me will see me no longer. You will look for me, but I will be no more. As a cloud vanishes and is gone, so is he who goes down to the grave does not return. He will never come to his house again. His place will know him no more. Job turns away from his conversation and reaches out to God in prayer. When he says, you will look for me, the you is God. Remember, O oh God, you will look for me, he says. He's not sure about what happens after death. Job doesn't have an Old Testament to read, let alone a new. He, he knows about Adam and Eve. He knows about Enoch and Noah, but, and Noah, but for him, Abraham, that's just a man whose grandchildren are living out west someplace. You see, in Job's time, Noah's son, Seth, may still have been living, maybe in Canaan. Uh, we're, in, 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 uh, in between the, this devotion and the next, I'd like to give you a, a kind of chronology of Abraham's life. I think I'll do that. Job didn't know everything we know about the soul and what happens after death. All he knew was that when a person dies, he dies, and that there is a resurrection from the dead. In, in, in chapter 19, we also see the second instance of the word, um, of the word we in Genesis 
uh, uh, 22.5 and 22.2, but uh, Job knows that uh, that he will be in heaven. In the meantime, and he knows that we will be too. In the meantime, Job wonders about what will become of himself after his death. No, I will see him, not even God's eye, like a vanished cloud or a stranger who has left the tent, he'll be gone, and who will remember him? In his increasing hopelessness, Job has exaggerated about man's lot in life, and then he has applied his exaggeration word for word to his own life and troubles. He wonders about his legacy, his place will know him no more, and Job despairs. Our legacy is not the memory of us, but it's the gospel of Jesus Christ. We share in a fellowship that goes back to Adam and Eve and Job and includes every believer until the last day. When we despair, we look to God and we know that he sees us now and always. He holds us in his arms and his forgiveness, his mercy and his love endure forever. Back in verse 9, he talked about a cloud vanishing. Uh, that's maybe the second reference to the need for rain and a hint about the coming storm. There is no sign of help on its way yet. The clouds are disappearing. But the need there for that coming storm is always before our eyes in this book. In Christ, I'm Pastor Tim Smith. This is God's Word for you. This is from Chris Dreisbach's latest album, One Cross, Three Nails. It's called Tail Rider.
Thank you for joining us. You've been listening to episode 24 of Canaan Bound Podcast. For this episode, we'd like to thank the artist who allowed us to feature their music, Branches Band, the song Nothing But the Blood of Jesus. Visit branchesband.com to find more information and to order music. Also, Chris Dreisbach from his new album, One Cross, Three Nails. Visit chrisdreisbach.com or visit nph.net to order his music. This episode was first shared in May of 2013. Once again, my name is Tom Barthel. I was glad to be serving as your host for this episode. Visit canaanboundpodcast.com to find information about these artists and how you can support them. We encourage you to visit wells.net to visit a Wells Ministry location nearest you. Thanks for listening.